Good morning again. Take your Bible now, would you, and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. One of the things that we realized the other day was that we have mentioned the elders several times and several of our people have said, oh, I'm not sure who the elders are. So we thought it would be good for them to, they love you and care about you and pray for you. It would be good to have them come up here and do it. So from time to time we'll be getting the elders up here. And that was one of them, Dwayne Fagerberg. So if you have any really serious problems, issues, difficulties, or questions, talk to Dwayne. (laughs) He's one of our elders. Um, I wanted to add a couple more things while you're turning to Ephesians 1. You're going to need your Bible this morning, so I hope hope you will find one. Um, one is that if you if you are somebody who believes in prayer, are you? Yes. You keep a prayer list. Would you write Rich Gardner's name on it also, um, as well as the Mitchells? I think Rich left this morning. I believe he's driving across the country. South Dakota, I think. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, he's taking one of his daughters, um, I think, to a job there. And then he's going to drive from there... Uh, like a whole another day, and then he's going to get on a plane. And he's going to fly to Nigeria, um, and then when he gets to Nigeria, he's uh, going to a place um, that is up in the northeast corner of Nigeria, which is a place that most people are recommending Westerners not go to these days um, because it's a little dangerous. And he, there was a conference there for a thousand or fifteen hundred pastors and evangelists, and the primary speaker uh, is in the hospital right now. And so Rich is suddenly going to do six or seven messages. And anyway, I just, this trip up there is going to be, he said, 10 hours in a bus. You know, you just have to have been to Nigeria to think about how incredibly, uh, anyway. So I just ask you, will you pray for him, you know, that God will use him, that he'll get some rest somewhere along the line, that the Lord will protect him, that God will use him to bless these pastors and evangelists, and that God will bring him home safely to his family. Um, is, Is that, would you do that? So lift him up, if you would. Um, then I wanted to tell you one other thing that's happening. It's starting next Sunday. Bob Buckendorf. Do you know Bob? You know Bob and Jolene? Bob is one of the sweetest guys, and he's one of my favorite people um, around here. And he's an excellent communicator and teacher. And he's led several of these equipped classes. He's going to do one starting next Sunday. That's going to be for the four Sundays in February. The information is in your bulletin. Uh, he's going to do something on friendship, biblical friendship. You need some friends? Well, you know, we're just, we're really weak and bad and not so good at this, about building biblical friendships the way God wants us to. So he's, you know, he says the Bible talks about this, and so he's going to talk about building biblical friendships and how to do it. It's going to be very practical, and if you know Bob, you know it's going to be really powerful. So I want to ask you to make a commitment to come to those four Sundays. It will take this incredibly deep commitment on your part to come to church two hours. It used to be everybody did that, you know, but now we've sort of got out of the habit of that. So I just want to ask you to come and and I want to ask you to then come the the second hour um, and listen to this teaching on Ephesians because both are important. And if if you need to, go to Bob's class and then you can get the recording on Ephesians if you just can't do it. If you've got small children that can't be here all that long. So now we are in Ephesians, we're beginning now in what's called the body or the text of the letter. We looked at last week what's called the salutation or the greeting, just the first two verses. And now we dive into one of the most amazing places in all of the Word of God. Um, We have this privilege of opening the Word of God to a place where God reveals through Paul and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life, the greatness of the eternal plan of God. God is revealing himself in his own thinking and what he has done 
and is doing and will do to bless his people. This is a staggering place in the word of God. And it's one of those places that a small child can grasp, and yet the greatest thinkers of all time have just been drowned in it. Because it just brings up so many realities and so many riches and so many gifts and so many questions in our minds that it's impossible for us to sort through. So there's no way that I or Matt or anybody can like solve this all for us. In fact, we're going to be face to face with some issues that God's people have been talking about for 2,000 years and have not resolved. And, and we don't want to get bogged down in sort of the debate of some of those things, but what we want to do is we want to receive the riches that God has for us. And this is really all about the riches of God. In verse 3 through verse 14 of chapter 1, in the English, this is several paragraphs and many sentences, but when you read it in the Greek, it is one long sentence. 202 words. I don't know if you've ever spoken, you ever been with somebody who just, I mean, they never take a breath, you know, and they, you know, and they just go right on. It's something like that, except this is just, this is like cascading kind of wave after wave after wave of, of God's blessing in the life of His people, and it's just staggering. It's one of those things where we've had to divide it up into sentences and commas and periods and paragraphs to grasp it, but I just imagine this guy who is like, is Paul's scribe, and Paul is walking back and forth, and he's just, he's just saying this, you know, and this guy is trying, you know, trying to all write it all down, and then when people heard it read, it would just be like one long thing, and so, and we're going to take three weeks to dissect it, and we'll look just at verses three through six this morning, but it would be great if we would read the whole thing again, so would you be standing with me and let us read Ephesians, follow along in your Bible if you would. Um, And I'll read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So Paul begins with this, verse 3. Praise be, or literally, blessed be, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If the word here, praise, is literally blessed, then three times Paul uses the word bless or blessing or blessed in that verse. 
And that's why I began wanting to share with you at the very beginning of our worship time that this is a, that the word blessed is used many different ways. And the first thing that Paul says is that God is blessed. And it's a synonym for praise. He is great and worthy to be praised. And so he is blessed. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul, in verse 3, begins to lay out the riches, the gifts, the blessings of God. The things that God has done for us. His children. And one of our problems, of course, is that we just go through life and life sort of surrounds us and we're, we're wrapped up in our life and what's happening right now. And we, we simply, we either forget or we never learned or it isn't deeply ingrained on us all the things that God has done for us already. And these are intended by the Spirit of God to be like a bedrock upon which we stand and walk in life. And the problem is that so many of us, you know, we don't know all the things that God has done or we... we it doesn't come back to us during those times of struggle, and so we're overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. And one of the purposes of God in giving us this incredible place in verses 3 through 14 is to tell us what God has done for you and who you are and what he has done for you before you were even born and who you are in him and what it means. And, and he just lists the things. It's just like wave after wave after wave of what God has already done the purpose of it is for you to end up about verse 14 saying, Praise God. In the midst of my circumstances, even now, praise God. He gives and he takes away. But when you sing he gives and he takes away, do you have a tendency to think about the stuff he's taken away? Isn't it fascinating how our mind goes immediately to that? You know, oh yeah, oh man, I lost, oh yeah, you know. But I want to say to you, he gives and he takes away. He gives so much more than he ever has taken away or ever will. And one day we will get it. So there are some questions I put. Maybe this is a way to tackle this. I just put them in your note sheet. You can follow along if you want. The first thing to do is who is the source of the blessings? Of course, it is God. Praise be God or blessed be God, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the blessed one. He is the one who is great and worthy to be praised and so Paul begins out where, begins where you must begin. You must begin with God. If you begin with yourself, you're in trouble. If you begin with other people, you're really in trouble. If you begin with the world, you're depressed. And so Paul says, begin with God. Blessed be God. And the reality is, is stuff, and we forget it. The, real, the truth is, is that every good gift that you have came from God. Every good thing you have came from God. Now you say, well, wait a minute here. My friend gave me that. My parents gave me that. The world gave me that. Buddy gave me that. I got that from them. And I just want to tell you, their ability to give any of those things to you came from God. That's why James says in James 1.17, literally every good giving and every good gift comes down from the Father. Of lights. It is a gift of God. And so Paul begins with, there is no source of good apart from God. So blessed be God. Our, our task in life is to understand the greatness of our God, that he is a God of grace. He is a God of loving kindness, that he is a God of blessing. He's got other stuff in him, but he is a good God. And so the first thing is, the source of our blessing is from God. The next question is, so who receives the blessing? Well, he has blessed us, Paul said, us. Now, who's the us? 
it would refer, of course, to the verse immediately before the couple, first couple of verses in this thing called the salutation, the greeting, where Paul writes to the saints and those who are faithful. So the people, when he says he has blessed us, he's talking about the saints. So I want to ask you again, are you a saint? Mm-hmm. Hard one for us. Because we tend immediately to go to, I'm a saint only if I'm a really good guy. Uh, if I'm really, if I perform really well. And that, therefore, I am a saint because somebody thinks I'm really good. And I earn my sainthood. You know, somebody's got to declare me a saint. I want to tell you, God declared you a saint, not on the basis of your behavior, but on the basis of the fact that God chose you. The word literally means holy one. And the word holy is the idea of separation. So what God has done is he has separated people. He's taken unholy people, you and me, and he separated unholy people to his purpose, which makes them separated to his purpose and therefore holy. And there, because we are holy, separated to his purpose, then we strive for holiness. And we don't arrive at perfect holiness in this life, do we? The person you lived with? But someday... Holiness in its fulfillment. I want to say to you again, you're not a saint because you're perfect or because you're really, really good. And some people are not more saints than others. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. And God calls you that and the Bible calls you that again and again. We have rejected this word and we've yielded to the world that says, oh, the Roman Catholic Church has got to declare you a saint. I'm not Mother Teresa, so I'm not a saint. I want to tell you the Bible says... That if you are in Christ, if you're saved by the blood of Christ, you are a holy one. And you are called, therefore, to walk holy because he has set you apart for that. So you are the ones, one of the ones who receives the blessing because you are a saint. Because God has called you to this. Because God has placed you in Christ. Then he says, he answers the question, where are these blessings located? Where do we get them? He says, in the heavenly realms. And now we're faced with our first headache. The heavenly realms. What is that? And the tendency, of course, when you see the word heavenly is to think heaven. Someday we get to, we die and go to heaven. Not a great expression, by the way. I just suggest you rethink that a little bit. Heaven. He's not talking about heaven someday. He's not talking about the new heavens and the new earth that will, that will, everything will be recreated and the new heavens and the new earth will be joined together. He's not talking about that heaven someday. He's talking about the heavenly realms or the heavenly places or some Bibles say the heavenlies. And this is a reality now. There is another place, if you will, that is called the heavenly realms. And Ephesians is the place, if you want to study this, the best place to study in the Bible. Let me give you the five places where Paul uses the phrase heavenly realms or heavenly places. It will give you a clue, and this is fascinating, and it's something that we just kind of don't think about. The first one, of course, is here, right here in verse 3. The next one is in chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul says, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father... In the heavenly realms. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. Now. Not someday. Now. Then in chapter 2, verse 6, he will add this thing. that Oh, we will have fun with this. 
he says that we have been seated together with Christ, in Christ, in the heavenly places. Now. Not someday. Now. We are seated with Christ, with him, in the heavenly places. Hmm. In chapter 3, verse 10 is the next place where he says there are rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That this is a place of spiritual reality. That there are spiritual beings, if you will, that exist now in the heavenly places. We're not talking about earth primarily, and we're not talking about heaven someday. We're talking about the heavenly realms. It seems to touch the highest heaven and earth itself. And the fifth place is in chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul will write to us and say, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Remember, it's against the rulers and the authorities and the powers and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So one of the ways I think about this is I think, well, the Bible talks about heavens in, a, in three different ways. It talks about the physical heavens, the stars, and says God has created the heavens and the earth, and we know some of the power of God by the creation of the heavens, the physical heavens. But then the Bible talks about, then there is a, the highest heaven, and God lives in the high, he is over everything else, and he, he is thrown, if you will, is in the highest heavens because he is the sovereign king over everything. And if you will, perhaps you can think of it this way, somewhere in between this physical heaven, this physical earth, and the highest heaven is this thing called the heavenly realms, where there's spiritual stuff happening. And it's difficult for us to grasp because we tend to think so physical. And we tend to think of the things that are natural. So, But God blesses us in two ways. He blesses us in our walk on this earth. He blesses us in physical ways. He blesses us with stuff going on in this world and in our life. But he also blesses us in the heavenly places. And every now and then you get a sense of this, that there's another, like there's another world going on. You ever do this? Where you think... Whoa, something else is happening here besides just physical stuff? And it would be almost like if you could just pull the curtain, you would, maybe you would see angelic beings or they would, and this whole, like, you ever been in a, a thing where you think there's an evil force going on here, and, but it's not visible? Or the whole thing about angels, or this whole thing about being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What is this? Paul is telling us, look, there is a place called the heavenly realms, and our blessings are there. They're not primarily here. You're not going to find them in a safe in your home, and you're not going to be, they're not in your wallet, they're not in your purse. They're in the heavenly realms. Then we ask the question, how are these blessings received? They are received in Christ. Because this is where Christ is. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we are in Christ. It's going to be amazing we can grasp more and more of that. Let me suggest to you some of the most powerful words Jesus ever said were said to his closest disciples on the night he was betrayed when he looked at them. This is John 14, 20. He looked at them and he said, and in that day you will know that I am in you and you are in me. In that day you will know that I am in you and you are in me. What did he mean by that? And, and, we, and we begin to realize that this whole thing called Christianity is not a religion that we believe some things in our brain differently than other religion. That this thing called authentic Christianity is really all about being in Christ and Christ being in us. Christ in you, the hope of 
glory. And 164 times Paul says, in Christ, in the Lord, in the beloved, in Him. That was his, that was his most precious way of describing what the Christian life is about. We're going to talk about this more next week. We tend to think physically. And this is something that is in Christ. And Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. There's stuff that is real and true for us that is our blessings, our gifts, that are our possessions because God has given to them to us now, but they are spiritual and so they are not physically discernible. But they're just as real as anything you've ever touched with your hands. Perhaps we could say more real. We think so physically. We're dominated by the physical but think about it for a moment. What, how did God make you? He gave you a physical body. We tend to think our body is the real us. But then when you think more deeply about it, you realize, no, it's not. This body is not the real me. I'm way more cool than this. Right? I mean, it's, and this whole body is, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, some of you do. So, and some of you have been with people you love who have died. And you know they left. And the body is still there. That's not them. And then you put it in the ground, right? And you realize, that's not them. It never was them, but now you really get them. So where are they? So their soul and their spirit, their body, soul, and spirit, their soul-spirit thing, whatever that is, that's a little mysterious, has left, right? Are you with me here? And you realize that, okay, there's a whole unseen spiritual realm of reality. The real person went somewhere. Where did they go? My friends, we're talking about a spiritual reality where now Paul is saying, look, the blessings that you have are in Christ. And, and they are not wrapped up around your, about your physical body and what you have in primarily in this world. They are riches that God has given to you and they are protected so very Carefully in this heavenly realm. And one of these days, oh, one of these days, we're going to get this. And then it's going to be put all back together with a new body and a new heavens and a new earth. Yeah. So then the next question is, what are the blessings? What are, now Paul begins to lay out the, the blessings. What are their blessings? Well, the first thing he says is every spiritual blessing. Every, you can skip over that word, but then you, I want to pause and get... Get you to think with me, really? Every spiritual blessing has been given to me in Christ? Do I have everything I need now? I don't, I don't feel like I do, right? I mean, sometimes I feel really weak, so I feel like I don't have... But then Peter chimes in. If you're taking notes, write down Second Peter 1.3. Peter chimes in and says this. His divine, that is God's divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us, notice past tense again, he has given us everything we need. What both Paul and Peter seem to be saying is, look, in Christ God has given to you everything you need to live for him. And he's given to you it to you now. And he will keep giving it to you as you walk. And so what we experience so many times is I feel really weak, but God's called me to do that, and it's scary and frightening and all that, and I don't have the strength to do that, And but I know God's called me to, to do it, and so I step out of the boat, if you will, and I start moving that way, and as in the obedience, then God gives the strength. And you even know this, about this? This is the way it works. And then you discover God has, out, has, has given to me this bedrock of blessing, and what I need to do is just walk in it and obey Him, and I will discover 
that he has given me every spiritual blessing. It's like a bank account. Imagine this. You get this package in the mail, and you open it up, and it's from a lawyer. And you had this distant uncle who was a multimillionaire, and this lawyer says he left you $10 million. Here's the checking account. $10 million. Here's the count. Number? Here's the checks. What would you do? Start writing checks, right? I mean, boom, you know, right? Right, let me test this out. I want to, I'll start writing checks now to see whether or not I really, ha- these riches are truly mine or not. And by faith, I'll write the check and deposit it in the bank. And my friends, it's something like that. We call it prayer. And obedience. And walking by faith. And doing what God said. It's like writing a check. The question is whether or not you think God has given to you anything or not. And, and God, and Paul, I think by this inspiration of God, is trying to persuade us. You have, you are rich. Do you know how rich you are? Oh, we're just sinners saved by grace. No. No. It's, it's yeah. Okay, let's go on. Verse 4. My problem here is, yeah, okay, you know my problem. So then Paul begins to explain every spiritual blessing in Christ. And here they come. Here's, here's this blessing after blessing after blessing. You know, I'll just start it and, and Matt will pick it up next week. And man, that, we'll, we'll just talk about this. And you just grasp whatever it is God gives you. The first blessing, of course, is God has chosen us. What does it say? He, for he chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. He chose us in him. But notice the time sequence before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the earth, before this thing called time that we think of as time started, God chose us in Christ. Oh, and here's where some more of the headaches start. Oh, how does, how does that work? He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Wow. It leads us right up to the question, why is anyone a Christian? What? If somebody asks you that, why are you a Christian? How did you get to be a Christian? You would say something along the lines, well, there was a time in my life when somebody preached this gospel or declared it or somebody shared with me, my, my friends at school, or, you know, and I, you know, and I prayed to receive Christ. I gave my heart to Christ and I, quote, became a Christian there that, at that time. And so now I'm a Christian because I received Christ. True? You afraid I'm tricking you? Yeah? <laughs> No, it's true, right? I mean, from our perspective, that's what happened, right? I mean, but now what Paul's doing is he's putting another thing in here, and he's really saying, long before he chose you. Which then sets up this whole question about the sovereignty of God and salvation and human responsibility, right? The blessing that Paul is talking about is very clear. In eternity past, the Father chose us. And so what we have is not a man-centered gospel at all. We have a God-centered gospel where God designed this thing in the very beginning and before the beginning. And we have experienced it in time. So that what has actually happened to us is the first blessing is that God actually chose us. And you say, well, hasn't this been debated somewhat? Oh, yes. And there's no way that I can resolve it. No one can resolve this one. There are people who think they have an answer for it, and if you've read the, the quote answers, you know that they're 
inadequate, that they fall short. Sort of on whatever side of the spectrum people fall, whether on the great sovereignty of God or whether on the full responsibility of man. And so people divide up into camps. Can I just remind you that John Calvin didn't think of this stuff? Neither did Augustine. This is, this is not, this is from God. So God is the one, and people have been trying to figure this out for a long time. People have said to me, what about free will? Don't we have free will? I mean, we're into free will, right? We're heavily into free will in America, particularly, I want to choose for myself. What about my free will? What about free choice? Every time I hear that phrase, now in these times in my life, I think, who has the most free will? Who is really free to do whatever he wants? There's only one person totally free. I mean, every decision you've ever made or any have I made, we've been conditioned somewhat by our circumstances, by our environment, by what it is we've been. I mean, but God can do what he wants. We call we call him sovereign. He has all authority, all rights. He can do what he wants. It's his creation. Paul uses an interesting illustration in, in the letter of, we call Romans it, where he says, we are like lumps of clay on a potter's wheel, and God is the potter, and he's forming us. And then he says, will the lump of clay say to the potter, why'd you make me like this? But we do that, right? I mean, have you ever done that? You ever looked in a mirror and said, why'd you make me like this, right? You know? Or, or this is happening, you know, or why this, what? And then you realize there's no real answer to that. God has authority and rights. He can, and, and the answer of Paul is he can do what he wants with his creation. Are you going to argue with him on this one? I recommend you not. You know, and, but people have, of course. And this whole thing, if you see, look at verse 5, it says he chose us and he predestined us in accordance with his pleasure and will. He has a pleasure. So then you read Jesus saying things like this. John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Ooh. Or this one, John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. One of the clearest places in the Bible for me is Second Timothy one nine, where Paul writes to Timothy, he says, God has saved us. And called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, that's pretty clear, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Hmm. It seems clear to me that the Bible so clearly teaches that God chooses and God predestines and God has an elect. Jesus talked about the elect. And yet, at the same time, the Bible so clearly teaches human choice and volition volition and responsibility that we must decide, that everyone must decide, and that's why the Gospels must be preached. So you come to a place like Romans 10, 13, that says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, You know Romans 10, where it talks about, you know... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him unless somebody preaches? And how will somebody preach, you know, unless they are sent? And so you get this whole human thing about people have got to be sent and people must go and people must preach and people must hear and people must 
believe and they must call on the name of the Lord. It's very human. The whole thing is just really human. Human responsibility all the way through, all the way from the senders to the receivers. You get this? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? That's Romans 10. And you think this is all human. It's all human responsibility. Then you back up a couple of chapters and you come to Romans chapter 8 that says that God foreknew and predestined, you know, and he called and he justified and he glorified. All these things are in past tense and it's all God. Huh. So, are we chosen to come to Christ or do we choose to come to Christ? Some greatly emphasize one and some greatly emphasize the other. I, I'm comfortable with the paradox thing again one more time. That there is a sovereignty of God in salvation and there is great responsibility to submit, to decide, and to believe. Uh, I, one of those great preachers um, years and years ago, he was a great evangelist and he would constantly call people to come to Christ. And he would say, decide for Christ. And he would plead with people to... Give their hearts to Christ, come to Christ, choose Christ, submit to Christ, believe in Christ, receive Christ. And he would just, and people just came, and so many people were saved. And, and, but then, then he would get to a place like this, and he would preach the sovereignty of God and salvation that God chooses and elects and predestines. And it's, it's only those people who ever get into the kingdom because God has a plan from the very beginning. And, and then people say, well, how do you put those two together? Or why do you do the big, you know, evangelism thing? If people, only the chosen and the elect, get in the kingdom. You ever wonder about this? Is this a a reason why we shouldn't do evangelism? Because if God's chosen, they're going to get in somehow anyway? You know what his answer was? He said, you know, I believe in the elect. I believe the Bible teaches the elect. And if God put a, stamped a big E on everybody's back that was truly elect, I'd just go around pulling shirts up. But he hasn't done that, and he's, he's ordained both the end and the means. And the means is preach the gospel. And that nobody gets saved unless they call in the name of the Lord. So we must declare the gospel. I don't know if that helps you. It helps me. Somebody came up after the first service and said, For me, I like that illustration where you walk into the, you know, the gates of heaven, you know, and you walk into the gates, and, and this side on the gates of heaven says, Whosoever will may come. And you walk through, and you get into heaven, you look back, and it says, Chosen before the foundation of the earth. There's lots of illustrations. I don't know if any of them help, but all I know is, I'm okay. How about you? You say, well, how can I know, how can I come to Christ if I'm not chosen? I would say this to you. Whosoever will may come. Choose Christ. Submit to Christ. Fulfill your responsibility to submit your need to Christ. Choose him as Savior and Lord. Submit to him. And what will happen to you is when you are saved, you will know you were chosen. And it is your responsibility to listen to the truth and respond. Let's go on. God has chosen us to be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless. Wow. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. This is the word holy again. Holy ones as in separated. Not perfectly pure, so that makes you holy, but separated by God to be pure. Separated from the world to be separated to God so that you can be blameless in his sight. You are blameless because holy. So what God does is he calls people to himself and he says, you are my holy ones. 
And notice the word, the words in his sight. Some of your Bibles say before him, which is better. More accurate, I think, and better because it, it carries with it the idea that what God wants to do is not just look at us and say you're holy and blameless, but God wants to actually bring holy and blameless people before him and actually be right before him in his presence. We are separated to him and blameless. Blameless means no cause for accusation. No cause for accusation. Satan can accuse you. Your friends can accuse you. But if you are in Christ, you are holy and without accusation before God. And God's view is the one that matters. And that's why a place like Romans 8.1 will say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what God wants us to know is that his, his plan was to bring us before him. His plan was begun before the foundation of the earth. And his purpose was to have eternal relationship with his people. That what he wants is relationship with us. And he wants us to have relationship with him and relationship with each other. That God has always chosen a people. And therefore, we are to be people who will be before him. And we are to be people who will be before him and blameless. And that's the only way you can exist in heaven forever, if you are holy and blameless. And so what God has done is he's thought of us together with his son and places us in Christ. He's given to us what I've often told you is the greatest deal on the planet. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. That God, 2 Corinthians 5.21, takes my sin and places it in Christ on the cross, punishes my sin there so that he is forever just in punishing sin and takes the righteousness of his perfect son and credits to my account because I am in him. My sin for his righteousness, it just doesn't get any better than that. And this is the gospel, my friends. So the Bible says, now when this has happened to you, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it's God's will that you be sanctified or made holy or that you grow. It's God's will now that you grow in holiness, that now your holiness and blamelessness becomes more apparent in your own life and in the world. Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. He has predestined us to be like Jesus. Then verse 5 God has predestined us to be adopted. Adopted. Some of you know about adoption. It's very personal for you. Because you were adopted or you've adopted children. Now God tells us we are adopted. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Some Bibles say for adoption to sonship. This is not about masculinity and maleness here. It's about inheritance. That when a child was adopted, they were brought into a family. All the Ephesians would know about Roman law here. And that when, when a child was adopted, he would be brought out of the family that he was in and brought into a family and that he, that he would receive all the rights and the, and the abilities and the privileges of a natural child. And that he would have all the inheritance that a natural child would receive. And the most beautiful thing of all is he would have an intimate relationship with the father. And so now Paul is saying he has predestined us to be adopted to sonship or adopted as his sons. He wants us in an intimate relationship with him. And the only way we're going to get there is to get out of the family we were in, which Paul calls in Romans, in Adam, and places us in a new family in Christ. 
And we become adopted. We have relationship with his father. God has chosen you to adopt you. Hey, sometimes I've heard about some of you have adopted children. And you'll, you've told me, you know, this child so wants what they call a forever family. You've heard that? A forever family. I want to tell you God has a forever family. He's the one who designed this in the very beginning. He has a family that truly is forever. I don't know about you, but you know, if the choice between hell and going to heaven as a servant, I'd say servant in heaven is good, right? Or, or some people believe that when you die, you become an angel. No, but some people believe this. And, uh, but I'd be okay too if that's the only two options, but that isn't the option. God says, if you are in Christ, you are my child, my holy, blameless, adopted child. And so John says, 1 John 3, 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God, and that is what we are. So much of the Bible is trying to reorder our identity to help us to understand who we really are and what God has done. We are children of God. We are children. That is what we are now. And that God has had this plan in the very beginning to call us into relationship with him. And if you go all the way back to the beginning, and you see in Genesis that God creates Adam and Eve, and he creates them in his image, and then he walks and he talks with them. I mean, how cool is that? That God would walk and talk with his created creatures, these human beings, this man and this woman. He walked and he talked with them in the cool of the garden. Oh, it's boggling. And then Jesus comes and he gathers his closest followers around him and he, and he says, he says, look, I, 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 so, I want you to know that I am going to go away, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me so that you can be with me where I am. Do you get the whole relationship thing in that? That this is not about a religion, about some stuff that you believe and that you start changing, the conforming your behavior. This is about a relationship that God has called you in and apparently started a long time ago. And now this whole thing of the cross and of Christ and Jesus coming is so that Jesus now would say, I'm, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you. And the end result is so that you will be with me where I am. The, real, the reality is that Jesus wants you with him. You believe that? He wants you with him. God apparently wants you with him. Huh. Verse 6. God's plan is for his people to be for the praise of his glory. The praise of his, or his, praise of his grace. The praise of his grace. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. His people, no longer objects of wrath that he will talk about in the next chapter, but now objects of grace. God hasn't been pushed into saving us. Nobody compelled him to do it. He did it because he's a God of grace. He's full of grace. And this is one of the reasons why we bless him. His grace has this radiance, this beauty, this incredible unearnedness where he just gives to us not at all because we've earned or we've deserved or he just gives. Some of us have trouble believing that there is a father like that who just gives what you have never earned and never could earn, but he has given it to you. It's not that he will give it to you someday. 
He has already given it to you, and someday you're just going to get in on the fullness of it. And what he wants is for us to bask in that thing. Whoa! How sweet is the God of grace. And so he uses words like, you are chosen, you are predestined, you are holy, you are blameless, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're adopted children of mine. And my hope, of course, is that somehow the Spirit of God will take this and translate it into a reality in your heart where you will say, this is who I am. Not because of what I have done or will ever do, but this is because of the grace of God. And how is that grace experienced in our life? The last line, his grace is freely given us in the one he loves. In the one he loves or in the beloved. And this, of course, is our master, Jesus The grace of God is given to us in Jesus. It comes back again to Jesus. 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 Here's the rub. The rub is is that we as Christians who go to church again and again and again and you hear preachers go on and on and on and on about Jesus. That after a while, we lose something. Maybe we never had it all to begin with. But I want to ask you, do you have Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you in love with him? Do you know what he's done for you? Does it stagger you anymore? Do you ever cry about it? Can you praise him just because of who he is, not because of how good stuff is going right now in your life? Praise God for his grace in Jesus. The uniqueness of Christianity is Jesus Christ. We're not so unique in a lot of other things. Other religions have great moral codes. Oh, but Jesus. Years ago, a a boy was born into a Sikh family in India. His name was Sundar Singh. Google him. Quite a story. Sundar, S-U-N-D-A-R, Singh, S-I-N-G-H. They called him Sadhu Sundar Singh. Sadhu means wandering preacher. He didn't start out as a wandering preacher. He was born into a Sikh family and he hated Christianity. He was born in the time when the British came and they brought their foreign religion into India and he hated Christianity because he thought of it as the foreign white man's religion. When he was 15 years old, somebody gave him a gospel tract or a, 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 a gospel, I think it was one, the gospel of John, I'm not sure. He tore it up and burned it in public as a sign of his absolute disgust for Christianity. When you read the story of Sundar Singh's life, it was three days later that God went and brought him to himself. And he was, oh, he was converted. He knew he had been chosen. And he turned into a sadhu, which is this wandering preacher, and he spent the rest of his life walking around India telling people about Jesus, this converted Sikh now telling people about Jesus. And he, he went over the Himalaya mountains into Nepal and Tibet, and he gave his life on one of those trips. They don't know how he died, probably in some violent way. 
But the story is told about him one time he came to a, he came to a college, a Hindu college in India, and he was telling people about Jesus, and one of the, one of the lecturers there sort of accosted him and said, what is it that you have found in Christianity that you did not have in your own religion? And Sundar Singh said, I have found Christ. And he said, no, 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 what I mean is, what, what principle or, or what doctrine have you, what particular principle or doctrine have you found in Christianity that you did not have before? And Sundar Singh said, the particular thing that I have found is Christ. My friends, have you found Christ? Has he found you? And do you know it? And do you know that these things are just the beginning of the riches that God has given to you? So amazing. Well, we should take the Lord's Supper. Will you bow with me? And let's prepare to do that. So, Father, now we turn our hearts to the Master, to Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so grateful again that you revealed him to us. And so grateful that you have done a work that we could not do. That you have known about us and loved us from the very beginning, before we were even thought of. Before we were born, you knew. So now, Father, will you help us in this moment, in these few brief moments, when they bring that little piece of bread and the cup again, Will you do what you can, only you can do for us? Will you help us not to think of this as some ritual, the last thing we do before we leave and go have lunch? But this rare opportunity, this blessed opportunity to focus our heart one more time on the one who came for us and gave his life for us. Help us to worship when we hear the song and when we sing and when we hold the bread in our hand and the cup in our hand and Pray that you'd help us to feed on Jesus again. We love Jesus. Amen.